Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, worship team, for leading us. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Some of you have moved places from where you normally sit, and I just want you to know I see you. I'm good with that. Glad you're here. Uh, If you're visiting with us, especially glad to have you. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series today. Uh, The title is, What is the Gospel? And um, the the title actually comes from a a book, a small book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? I think there are eight chapters in this book. Um, A real concise but theologically sound and precise uh, definition of the gospel. And um, we aren't necessarily going through this book. Uh, We're actually going through this book, uh, the one we normally go through. uh, But I want to let you know about it, that we kind of hijacked the title and the framework that, um, that, that Greg lays out is really helpful. Um, and if you wanted to grab a copy and like read through it, it might be helpful if you want to go deeper. But as always, like any book we refer to, um, we're A, not endorsing everything in it. B, we're never placing it above this book or even on the same level as this book. And so I um, just wanted you to kind of know that as we, as we get into the series. Um, but I'm excited to get into the series with, with you um, to walk through this as a church. Um, what we're doing is going to be, I think, profoundly helpful and, uh, and maybe even monumental for our church. Um, you may not be aware of this unless you like study church history, but that question has been asked um, for over 2,000 years since the church launched. The question is, what is the gospel? And the New Testament authors um, are diligently answering and re-answering and redirecting the church to find the true gospel, um, but the struggle didn't end there. Even after the New Testament was written, since the church has launched, we as God's people have struggled and have, um, have moved away from uh, the true definition of the gospel. There's reasons for that that we'll unpack, but I want you to realize that as we address issues in our current day and time with how uh, people may define the gospel or how the, the, the church may preach the gospel, that it's, an, it's a 2,000-year-old struggle to answer that question accurately. And to here's the struggle, to believe it. I think that's the reason why we wander away from it and we forget what it says, is that on the front end, we truly struggle to believe the good news of the gospel. And so this series, as we go through it, we'll, be, we'll spend six weeks together allowing the scriptures to define for us the gospel for some of us to redefine or redirect or recalibrate our hearts to actually believe it, to believe it as good news, as God presents it. Um, just kind of thinking about um, getting started here today, the, big, the question we're going to answer today, the big question is this, where do you find the gospel in, in the Bible? And that'll be the big question we're answering today as we get started. I want to start though first with just a story of something that happened uh, back in August that I think helps us kind of understand the heart of the series. So I've shared with you periodically, um, I have a couple of buddies that I do some rugged um, camping with every year. And these two buddies and I, we started, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, uh, backpacking, like out into the wilderness, going miles out with a big heavy backpack with all of our gear, and then trying to survive for three or four days uh, to show to one another how awesome and how masculine we are. And then we would come back to society with warm water and showers and restaurants and then we would yeah so we've been doing that for a long time well two I guess two summers ago last a year ago August we traded in our backpacks for donkeys uh, which proved to be a significant upgrade we took six donkeys into the wilderness in Oregon and and it was fantastic well this past August we actually traded in the donkeys for four-wheelers and I'm telling you right now four-wheelers is the way to go 
Uh, the more the more gray I get in my beard, the more I'm like, man, why? Why not just get on a four-wheeler and go? And so we did. Uh, but this was new for us. We Again, we've been backpacking. We feel comfortable studying trail maps and going in that way. But four-wheelers was a different thing. So uh, we have a friend, a mutual friend, who has a cabin with some four-wheelers up in Colorado. And we talked to him. He's like, yeah, you can use my stuff. And, and, and yet we only got instructions from him over the phone. So he would, he would talk on the phone. He lives in a different city. He said, yeah, we'll set this up. Here's how you get in the cabin. And we started asking for intel on, the, on the, how to get to where we want to go. We want to get to some good fishing and good camping. He's like, yeah, 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 I got you. So he begins to give me instructions over the phone that we're going to need to not only get to where we want to get to, but to get there alive. Because he kept saying things like, hey, you're going to pass this trail. You don't want to go down that trail because we typically roll machines there. And you don't want to go down this one because this one we like flip three machines. And I'm like, I'm hearing this and I'm like, I'm picturing a four-wheeler flipping and rolling down the mountain and nothing about that sounds like fun. And so I'm listening. I'm like soaking it in. I'm memorizing the instructions. And his instructions to me, the main thing I heard was this. All right, Jason, whenever you, when you're up on this ridge and you're going to be able to see down into the valley where you're going to want to go, don't take the first trail. Take the second. So I memorized that. I soaked it in. I was like, okay, I know it. So when we get our maps out, we're going to find the first trail. We are not going down that trail. He's like, man, we roll machines. You'll get halfway down. You won't be able to make it. It is bad news. Okay. Taking trail two, loud and clear. So we get these instructions over the phone. We make it to Colorado to the cabin. We find the maps. We roll them out on the, kind of on the island there in the kitchen, and we're studying these maps. And we're like trying to make sense of where to go and where to start and I said, hey, guys, here's what I remember him saying. Don't take the first trail down to the valley. That one, that one will roll a machine. Take the second one. Like, okay, so we're studying our maps. We're finding our starting point. We're tracing it up. We're, like, looking. Like, hey, pull out another map. Does that look the same? Yeah, it looks the same. Oh, look, there's trail number one. Don't go down that one. So we keep tracing the trail with our finger, and we're trying to find it, and we find the next turnoff, and we look, and sure enough, somebody had taken a pencil and drawn an arrow on this trail, which was consistent with what I heard on the phone. So I'm like, that's it, guys. That's the trail. He said, take the second one. There's a pencil mark there. Let's take it. So, okay, we roll up our maps. We load up our four-wheelers. You know, like when I say we loaded them up, we had Yetis strapped on. Anytime we asked a question like, hey, should we take this or this? The answer was always both. I mean, we had gear to survive for a year, I think. We had chainsaws and axes and pots and pans and I mean we had steaks and we had everything we needed so we're strapping everything on we've got these top heavy four-wheelers here we go and we turn off on this trail that we think is the first the right trail and we make our way down to this valley up on the mountain we're doing good we're I don't know a couple hours in everything's great like it's beautiful and scenic and we're like man we should have been doing this the whole time we're just throttling the four-wheelers around, stopping to soak it all in, going a little further, having a picnic, and then we make it up to the ridge where we've got to turn down. And I stop, and I say once again, guys, do not take the first trail. We'll die. Let's take the second one. Everybody's like, okay, thumbs up. We got it. Taking the second trail. So here we go. We're cruising through the woods, and sure enough, we come up to a trail marker pointing to the left that goes down the mountain, clearly. I'd memorize the trail numbers, and I'm like, hey, that number right there, that is the first trail. I said, guys, that's not the one we want to take. Everybody's like, thumbs up. We're taking the second one. Okay. So we cruise another, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour through the woods, and sure enough, we come out on the ridge, trail number two. 
it's marked and it goes down the mountain. I said, all right, this is it. He said, take trail number two. So here we go. So we start off down the mountain. And first, I don't know, five, ten minutes, it was rough. But I'm like, it's fine. We'll be fine. But the further we went, the more I began to feel in my gut that we were on the wrong trail. And I kept going back in my mind to that phone conversation. He said trail two. And I'm leading the way. I'm the four-wheeler out front. And these guys are relying on me to keep them alive and safe. And, and I'm like, man, did I, make a, did, I, did I misremember that? I'm like, no, because we saw the map. It had an arrow. It was, we're on the right trail. And, y'all, we got to a point where it was so treacherous, that feeling, that sick feeling inside of your stomach. I started feeling that. And I would just stop the four-wheeler, the one I was on, and turn it off and make sure I could hear the other guys. Because if their four-wheeler was running, they were still hopefully alive. Because it's like we're in thick, dense forest, right? And we, I can't see. And so I'd wait until I could hear a four-wheeler. Like, okay, here we go. I'd turn it back on and go a little further. Well, I got to a point where I stopped, just had this sick feeling. I turned it off, and I got nothing. Like, oh, that's not good. I'll wait a minute longer. Nothing. Sure enough. I found a way to turn my four-wheeler around. Now, it's getting really hard to turn around. The trail's getting narrow, and it's cliffs, and I get it, and I go back up, and sure enough, as I come around a corner, one of our four-wheelers had laid over on its side, and it was like a yard sale, just stuff everywhere. First question is, is everybody okay? Okay, everybody's walking. I'm kind of going up there, and they're like, everybody's good. We flip the four-wheeler back over. We strap everything back on. Everybody takes a deep breath. Adrenaline goes down. We're like, okay, everybody good? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, hey, are you sure this is the right trail? I'm like, I. Uh, yes, trail number two. Yeah, we're good. And inside of my mind, I'm going, are we actually good? And so we cruise on another probably 20 minutes, and it gets to a switchback section. If you're ever looking at a trail map and it looks like this, okay, just know that's not good. Those are called switchbacks. That means the mountain is so steep, you can't go down it, you've got to go sideways and then turn and go sideways. And we got to a spot where these switchbacks were probably 160, 170-degree switchbacks, and the trail had been washed out by water and like you would drop the four-wheeler off as you're coming around the corner and just try to make sure that it kind of like settled and you would put down to the next one and it was just like climbing a ladder on a four-wheeler and sure enough got to a spot where I was like man I just have a sick feeling and I make it across this section and I stop once I get to a flat spot and as soon as I turn and look sure enough there goes one of my good friends tumbling down the mountain his four-wheeler had rolled over on top of him and it was flipping, and he had landed. The four-wheeler hit a rock and stopped, and I'm like, oh. A, we're a long way from anywhere. B, we can't go back up this mountain. The trail had gotten so bad, I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. So I jump off, and I run up there, and like, he stands up. I'm like, hey, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I think it hit my helmet. I think I'm safe. And like, okay, good. And we flip his four-wheeler back over. We get it back up on the trail. We get it loaded. We finally make it down to our our, our campsite, we set up camp. Everybody's alive. But there's this thing in our head going, yeah, we're not going to be able to make it back up. And so the next day, spend better part of a day out exploring with trail maps and trying to find a way back out. And I found this way out that was so easy that I went ahead and went all the way back out just to make sure it was not too good to be true. And then I came back and I started following this trail down and I realized, oh, wait a second. There's trail number one. The trail I'd come up was trail number two. We had started at the wrong point. And so sure enough, we got back to the cabin, we rolled out the maps, 
we had taken this verbal instruction that was accurate and clear, and we had misapplied it to the maps we were looking at, and we almost died. The good news is we did it, and now I know where trail number two is. <laughs> I called this guy on the phone that had given me those verbal instructions. I'm like, hey, bro, you need to get rid of that pencil mark that makes that other trail look like trail number two because we almost died. He's like, you didn't go down that one, did you? I'm like, yeah, we did. We rolled down it. Here's the point for today. What we're doing in this series is not reading this book primarily. We're going through God's Word. We're surveying the landscape of the Gospel. We're taking what we've heard, verbal instructions maybe from parents or grandparents or from this radio preacher, this podcast, this TV evangelist. We're taking all the things that we've heard and potentially even believed about the gospel, and we're actually comparing them to the trail map. We're comparing them to God's word. We're taking all the descriptions we have in our head of what God is like, and we're comparing them to what he says that he's like. We're thinking about the ways that God feels about us, and we're comparing those things to what God actually says about us that as a church, we might truly discover the real gospel. Now, the struggle to, to understand the gospel and believe it, like I mentioned earlier, is 2,000 years old. Even in like the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul says in chapter 1 to, the, to a church, he's like, hey, and think about this, this is first century. I mean, we're just a few decades away from the resurrection. You still have eye count witnesses. And Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished that you so easily deserted the true gospel. And he says, not that there is another gospel, but even if an angel comes down from heaven with a different gospel, do not believe it. And so it's really important that we answer this question, what is the gospel? Now today we're, um, we're going to look at the gospel itself and we'll be doing that over the course of six Sundays. But the first question is, where do we find the gospel? Where's the gospel located in the Bible? If I want to know it, how can I find it? Now, the reality is you can actually find the gospel summarized beautifully in one verse, multiple places. You can actually find the gospel in the big meta-narrative of the Bible. If you read it from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see and you'll hear the gospel. You can find the gospel in the New Testament. You can find the gospel in the Old Testament. You can find the gospel in the book of Jonah, the book of Leviticus. You can find the gospel in the book of Numbers. So we ask the question, where do I find the gospel in the Bible? There are a lot of possible answers. Today we're going to be looking at the gospel in Ephesians 2, but we could have very easily gone to Romans 3 or Romans 10 or any number of places to actually find the gospel. Just a quick word on what we don't mean when we say the gospel. What we're not talking about is your testimony. Okay, that's the church word we use to describe how God has worked in our story. We have a testimony. We will talk about how the gospel impacts our testimony, but we mean more than that, okay? We're also not just simply talking about church traditions. So I don't know what church tradition you grew up in, but some churches, they use that word to describe the style of music. 
Have you ever heard a gospel choir or gospel music? There are some traditions that actually have a separate platform or pulpit for the gospel in the church service. It's the, it's the pulpit of the gospel, and that's where the gospel gets preached and taught. And then all the other sermons and messages get taught on a different platform or a different stage. We're not talking about church traditions. We're not talking about testimony. We're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain the beautiful narrative of how God unfolds the gospel for us through his son, Jesus. But we call these books the gospels, and one of the misconceptions is that if you're going to find the gospel, it's got to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about evangelism. That's how you share the gospel. We're not talking about, um, some of you will resonate with this, we're not talking about a napkin drawing with two cliffs and a cross bridging the gap, though that is a way to illustrate parts of the gospel. We're not talking about a sinner's prayer that you come down to the front and pray with the pastor, although some of you may have come to believe the gospel through that means. So what are we asking when we say, what is the gospel? Now, I'm going to utilize some of the framework that uh, Greg Gilbert uses here. It's really helpful. He actually will outline the gospel with some questions. Uh, he uses four questions. I'm going, to, I'm going to steal those four and add one to it, five questions. Here, here are the questions. He begins with this. Here's the question we really need to start with. To whom are we accountable? Now, that's a really big question. If you're in the room and you're a minor, you're accountable to whoever your legal guardian is. And then all of us are accountable to laws and regulations locally and on a state level and then on a federal level, okay? But somebody who grows up in South Korea is not subject to those same rules and that same accountability. It's a different system of accountability. Or somebody who grows up in South Africa is not accountable to the same rules that you'll find in Brazil. So when we ask that question, to whom are we accountable, we are asking the question about all mankind, all humans. Red, yellow, black, and white, all languages, ethnicities, geographical regions. To whom are we as humans all accountable? The second question is, once we answer that, in what condition does that accountability find us? Whoever that is, what do they think about me? In what condition does that accountability find me? And third question is, is this. What has God done, if anything, to remedy uh, the condition that that accountability finds me in? Okay, so what has God done to solve the problem? Has God done anything? Are we just accountable and that's the end of it? Or has God done something for those who are being held accountable? Fourth question is this. If he's done something, how do I receive it? How do I receive what God has to offer? What's he expecting of me? What's the price? What's the bottom line? And then the fifth question is this. What is my role in my spiritual growth from salvation till I take my last breath what is God expecting of me what is my role 
in my own, you can include your own salvation, but also the spiritual growth that comes after that. As you become a Christian, you grow and you're challenged and you learn and God isn't who you thought he was. You discover something new about him. What is my role in that? And so we're going to answer these questions over the next six weeks. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, let's start together. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, let's start together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to stop here and think about that first question, to whom are we accountable? These verses are, seem to be describing all of mankind. I mean, it was in the verse, right? And the very first verse says this, that we are actually dead in our trespasses. So you know what that word means, right? Like if you trespass, you're just walking across a boundary line. If you trespass on my property, you, you've crossed over a boundary line that you're not supposed to cross. So whose boundaries have we crossed? To whom is all mankind accountable to? If I'm dead in my trespasses, whose law have I violated? Now, some passages of Scripture, it's super explicit and clear. Others, you've got to kind of dig around. So you keep following this verse, set of verses down to verse 10, and we're going to be reminded that we were actually created by God. And that's the answer to the question. To whom are we accountable? You are accountable to the one who created you. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm moving above the pay grade of mom and dad. I know, mom brought you into this world. She can take you out. But there's actually an authority above her who knits you together in your mother's womb. And he is, according to the book of Romans, like a potter and you are like the clay. And the potter, the creator, has authority over that which he creates. So you're not under his authority because you were born as a U.S. citizen. You're under his authority because you've signed up to be in his club. You're under his authority because he created you. And he created me. And so the question is, to whom are we accountable? God. He's your creator. Now the second question gets answered vividly and explicitly. In what condition does that accountability find us in? We are, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the condition that his accountability has found you in. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this description actually takes us back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created all things. He has created all things except for Eve, to be clear. But he has created Adam, and he's placed Adam in the garden. And he has a conversation with 
Adam about accountability. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He had purpose there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, I want to point something out here that I just saw for the first time. God's commanding, we always hear God's commanding and it's all the things we can't do. Did you just catch what God commanded him? Like something beautiful and good? I'm commanding you, go enjoy the garden. Go enjoy what I have made. And the Lord God commanded saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God has proactively put Adam in the garden, commanded him towards good things, gave him a law, and then let him know what will happen if he violates the law. It's what kind parents do. It's what good authorities do. Now, if you know the story, next chapter, Adam and Eve believe the lie of the serpent. They eat from the fruit. They disobey God and immediately something changes. Now, what we're expecting to happen, though, is for like a lightning bolt to come down and like zap Adam and just kill him, right? That's, I mean, that's what it sounds like. I mean, the the second you eat, Adam, the second you even like put it in your mouth, you'll surely die. That's what we're expecting to happen, but that's not what happens. Now, something does die, though. The intimacy that Adam and Eve had, like if you were back up a few verses, chapter 2 ends with Adam looking at Eve and going, oh my God, she's beautiful. This one is like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'll take her. And then as soon as they disobey God, their intimacy is fractured. It's dead. And now they're hiding from each other. They're feeling embarrassment and shame. Not only that, the relationship with God has now been severed. And they're actually hiding from God. What will he do with us if he finds us? We've got to cover this up. We've got to cover our tracks. We've got to hide from God. So you can already see the thing that Adam was created for. Do you remember what God said? It's not good for Adam or man to be alone. Boom. That's the first layer of the death. Then after that, God's like, hey, Eve, things are going to be different. I, I did this beautiful thing with creation where you actually get to bring humans into the world through your womb it's going to be incredible but now because of the fall something else has died it's going to be really painful this thing i created beautiful is now going to be a struggle adam remember how i told you hey i commanded you go out in the garden and eat enjoy and work it just like yeah that's changed now that's dead too i'm going to banish y'all from the garden and now you're going to have to you're going to have your food's going to come at the sweat of your brow and like You're going to fight against thorns. You're going to fight against the the work itself is going to work against you. It's going to be hard. What I created beautiful and good is now dead. And so now we get this picture of what God's talking about in this spiritual death. And so what Paul is reminding us of in the gospel is that this accountability to our creator has found us in the condition of spiritually dead. Now, just a side note, you were born this way. 
okay? You were born this way. And you've participated in it. Both. Born and raised. As hard as parents try to raise little sinners to not be sinners. Okay, I giggle, but it's coming back at you in just a second. There's two reasons why it doesn't work. Number one, you can't do anything about this, parents. You can't change your child's heart. You can't. You can lead them to the one who can, but you can't. There isn't a parenting book, a strategy out there, a set of rules, a set of disciplines that can actually change the human heart. So the deck is already stacked against you. On top of that, you're a sinner too. You don't always get it right. You don't always come through. You will actually sin in your parenting to try to keep your kids from sinning. (laughs) So the deck is like doubly stacked against us. You cannot raise your children out of this fallen condition. They need a heart change that you can't provide because you need it too. Okay? And so this is what we understand as the fallen nature. It's what he says here. You are by nature children of God. But don't overlook the, the idea here is Paul's like, he's not just saying, hey, you were born this way. You couldn't do anything about it. He's like, no, you, you actually once walked this way. You actually followed the prince of the power of air, the spirit of disobedience. You, you actually participated and you lived and you carried it out. This spiritual deadness, you can't just blame on mom and dad or Adam and Eve. You've participated in it. Which brings us to the end of verse 3, where Paul says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I want to talk about this word wrath because when we hear it, for a lot of us, we immediately go, I knew it. I knew God was mad at me. I knew that the only safe place was to hide from him. I knew he was angry. I knew he was just looking for any excuse to like backhand me to the ground. And I just read it in the Bible. There it is in the gospel. I am a child of wrath. What's interesting about this word is the picture we have in our mind of wrath is this authoritarian dictator who's angry, who has no mercy, who enjoys the pain of others. And I say, wrath, right? Just bring down your wrath. In the New, New Testament's written in Greek language, and this word arge, or orge, um, it means something that wells up from the inside. Um, it also means a passionate display of anger. And the way we translate it is either anger or wrath. What God is describing about himself is that he has passionate anger towards disobedience and injustice. We said this, I think, last Sunday. If you're a good parent, you know that feeling. When somebody commits an act of injustice against somebody you love, especially one of your kiddos, doesn't something well up inside you? A passionate, maybe even fierce anger? Okay, now, we're imperfect humans with that emotion, so we, we can really mess some stuff up. But this is describing what happens inside of God. 
that he has this, this welling up passion of anger towards disobedience and injustice. And so this gives us a view of God. Oh, was that who God is? Is that what God is like? He's just passionately angry? And then we get to verse 4, which begins with two powerful, beautiful words. But God. To whom are we accountable? God, our creator. What condition has he found us in? Dead in our trespasses. Verse 4. But God. And not just but God, but God being. This is a description of God's nature, his character, what he's like. What does it look like for a God to be able to hold passionate anger in one hand and to also be kind in the other? But God, listen to God describe himself. But God being rich in what? Mercy. This is not a description of a benevolent, irritated God going, I guess. I mean, I did it for you yesterday, but I guess. The word mercy here also translates compassion. But God being rich in compassion, not rich in irritation, rich in compassion and mercy. Because of the great love with which he did what? Loved us. He is a God of great love, and then he gave us that great love. How do we hold those two things? There's a tension there. And far too often that tension, here's what we do. We try to pull it apart. And we create two camps of thought. One camp is the, the hellfire brimstone camp. God is just angry. He's just, he's got a bucket full of hot fire and he, uh, 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 he's just watching you. And so every hard thing that happens in your life, you interpret it through that lens and go, see, God's just mad at me. He's just pouring ma madness out at me. And that's one camp. The other tension is to go way over here and to go, God is good, is gracious, love and kindness and go, yeah, he, he, he never gets angry at anything. I only want to focus on the warm, fuzzy side of God. The part that looks like Santa Claus. But the gospel clearly has a tension in it. A God of justice with passionate anger towards disobedience and injustice, and he's rich in compassion, mercy, and love. There are authors who've done work around this tension that could do a far better job than me, guys like R.C. Sproul, John Piper, uh, Tim Keller, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best. And what's, what's really cool is I actually don't have to work very hard to explain this. Because see, what happens is this. The gospel, the center of the gospel is this, this symbol we have right here, the cross. This cross represents the place in, the hum, in human history where God's justice and his love were poured out in full force. Both, at the same time. God's justice and his compassion. God's justice and his mercy poured out one place, one time on the cross. Let me say it this way. 
The cross is the place in human history where God's passionate anger towards sin merges with his loving kindness towards you, towards us. It's the place where what's true about verses 1, 2, and 3 connect with verse 4, but God. It's at the cross where God is both just and kind. At the cross, we see God's passionate anger towards sin poured out on Jesus and God's kindness poured out on us, both at the same time. So both can be true. God isn't this angry dictator in the sky who's got a bucket full of fire just waiting to pour down on you. But he's also not a pushover, passive, Santa Claus kind of God. He's a just and merciful God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now we're going to move into that next question. What has God done? That's the third question. What has he done? We're dead in our trespasses. We're accountable to God. Here's what he has done, verse 5. Even when we were. That phrase is profound. This is the phrase that's going to trip you up. Even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses. So whatever he does for us, he did it while we were still dead. Before we had anything to offer. Before we brought anything to the table. Okay, I want you to think about this. There's this, I heard this illustration when I was a, like a high school student. And it's, uh, it's, the, it, it's, a, it's a false version of the gospel. And it was this idea, and I heard a camp evangelist say it one time. It's like, hey students, here's the thing. You need to be rescued, which was a synonym for saved. And he's like, I can see it in your lives. You're out there treading water. Some of you are going under. You're grasping for air. You're hoping that God will save you. And at just the right time, God's going to come by and He's going to throw you a life preserver right before you go under. He's going to rescue you. And that sounds good. Yeah. It feels like my life. I'm treading water. That's not what just got described. I was not treading water. I was a dead man floating. Dead men don't cry for help. Dead men don't reach for a life preserver. Dead men don't keep their head above water and gasp for air. I was motionless, spiritually speaking. I couldn't do anything to save myself. And so that illustration miraculously would be is that I was floating in the water, motionless. And God in his mercy, mercy and his compassion, he came by. He was the driver of the boat. He was the one who threw the life preserver and he's the one who pulled me in and he's the one who resuscitated me and brought me to life. That's how good he is. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. Now, this, now we've got the word grace to contend with. And this is a really beautiful Greek word. It's the word charis. Um, it translates 
couple different ways. Um, it translates um, into the word joy. So charis can mean joy. Uh, it can mean pleasure. Charis can translate into the word delight or goodwill or loving kindness or favor. That's that Greek word, and in English, it means all those things. So what we just read is this. He made us alive together with Christ, and by grace, charis, you have been saved. So let me just put this into a little couple sentences here. By God's joy, you have been saved, rescued. By God's pleasure, you have been saved. God's not sitting there I guess like I've already saved enough of you like can't somebody write this down and just get it right no it is out of God's pleasure that he saves us if you go back to the Old Testament Isaiah chapter 53 describes the brutality of of God's justice on the cross and then in verse 10, it says this, that it pleased God to crush the son. God took pleasure in crushing his son to bring a way about to save you and me. It's out of his pleasure, out of his grace, out of his joy, out of his loving kindness that he rescues us. He's not just passing by in a boat going, what are, I, I guess, pull over, there's another one. No, God is on a rescue mission. He's actually out on the water looking for you. And when he finds you, he makes you alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And not only has he saved us, verse 5 says he's raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your eternal salvation. If you're saved, there's a future resurrection coming for you. And your ultimate resurrection will be unto eternal life in a perfect, pure, restored relationship with God the Father in an Eden-like heaven with restored relationships with other human beings. Everything that God intended in the garden gets restored. And you've been seated in these heavenly places. You're as good as there. That's your spiritual position. And then verse 7. Gosh, this one's... I, I, I said it in the last service, I'll say it again. We could spend a whole sermon on 7, but I just want to do my best to explain it in relationship to where we are today. So that. Why would God do that? So that. So that what? So that in the coming ages he might show something. This is speaking of eternity and heaven. In the coming ages God wants to show something. What does he want to show through saving you? What does he want to show through saving me? He wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to oversimplify it, but this is what I think is being expressed to us theologically, is that in heaven, in eternity, when I see myself there, potentially when I see you there, it is going to be such a beautiful testimony of how rich God is in grace. So like I, I say it this way sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor at a church in a county I grew up in. I run into people who knew the old me. I ran into my JV football coach last night. 
And occasionally when I run into people who haven't seen me in a long time, and like, yeah, so what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor. And they're like, really? Like, I thought you were joking, but you're not like, like really? Yeah. That's how good God is. But wait, you didn't go to church when we were little. I know. Actually, it seemed like you were working against God. Now you're working for him. I know. And it's a testimony of God's immeasurable grace. Now, fast forward to eternity. That's what's being described in verse 7. In all eternity, God's grace will be on display. Because you're going to be there if you're in Christ. Because I'm going to be there. And I don't know what it would be like, but I get this picture in my head where you're going to look and go, really? He let you in? Yeah. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness. God's kindness will still be on display in heaven because those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins have been made alive and will be with him forever. Isn't that, gosh, so good. The testimony of God's kindness will be that you're there and I'm there. Now, let's move on to verse 8. Again, grace is mentioned, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So what has God done to address the problem? He sent his son to pay the penalty for death. He poured out his justice and wrath. What was owed to the sons of disobedience, what was owned to us, was poured out on Jesus, and at the same time, he was pouring out his loving kindness on us. That's what he's done. How then do we get that? How do we receive that? What does he need? What's the bottom line? Verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By God's mercy and loving kindness and his favor and his joy and pleasure towards you, he rescued you through what? What mechanism? What was it in you? What, what did, yeah, what did you bring to the table? Faith. What was, the, what was the, the checklist of stuff you needed to get done? Faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, we're going to tease that word out a little bit more as the series goes on because there's this beautiful description in the Bible of faith that's alive versus this idea of just like wishful thinking. There's a difference. Faith that's alive, according to Romans chapter 10, will actually produce a confession. You know what I mean? Like you're so excited about something, you can't not say it. It's like a month or so ago when our oldest son got his first car and we surprised him with this beautiful, brand new, shiny 87 Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> it's, it's rugged, y'all. We washed it with a water hose on the inside. And, uh, but to see his face, like when he first saw it, he knew that that's what we had gotten for him. Like, first of all, he just couldn't contain. Thank you. Like, he was just beaming with overflow of joy and excitement. And then he couldn't wait to get his phone out and take a picture of it and send it to his friends. And that's joy that's overflowing in confession. So this faith that saves us overflows, according to Romans 10, with confession. We believe in our heart and we confess that Jesus is Lord. We'll be saved. James, in chapter 2 of the book of James, he's going to talk about how this faith that's alive will even produce good works, which is what we're going to talk about next. Your confession isn't what saves you. 
Your good works is not what saves you. We're saved by grace through faith. And faith that is alive produces confession and leads us to good works. Now, look at what it says next in verse, the rest of verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And this is where some of us are going to struggle. I, I picture the kid who goes in the convenience store who doesn't have enough money to buy anything, but he's got like 13 cents in his pocket. He's so cute, right? He's like, I just, I just want to pay for this candy bar. And you're like, that's so, that's so sweet. And you kind of give the, the clerk a look like, I'll pay for the rest, just take it. Like, oh, thank you, son. Here's your candy bar. And it's like, actually, it's eighty. So you're like, here, slide my card. That's how we approach the gospel sometimes. Like, we had something to do with it. I got my 13 cents. I was nice to an old lady once. That's why God wants me on his team. Okay, that's a false gospel. You don't have a good, enough good works. This is not like Santa Claus, where as long as your nice list is bigger than your naughty list, you get in. We were actually dead in our trespasses. So God had to do everything for us. He didn't need your 13 cents. Matter of fact, you reach in your pocket to find it, and you're like, where did I put the 13 cents? I got nothing. Perfect. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. That's Bible taught for brag. I'll be brief on this. You will have one boast when you get to heaven. If I walk up to you, I'm like, really? He let you in? And you're like looking at me like, really? He let you in? Yes. We will have one boast, what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's it. It won't be the Jesus and the cross and my 13 cents. It'll be Jesus and the cross and my nothing. That's my only boast. And so Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. How do we receive what God has to offer? Believe it. And believe it. The Bible says that supernatural things happen when you believe the gospel. Something will come to life inside of you and a confession will come out of your mouth. Jesus is Lord. And you'll begin to move towards good works. Verse 10 talks about this last question that I posed. So what is my part in spiritual growth? When I ask that question, I mean it in terms of my salvation and then everything that happens after that. So what is my part? Verse 10 says, For we are His worksmanship. Okay, so that's the image of like a a carpenter in the workshop and he's building something, he's creating something, he's crafting something, he's honing something, he's sanding something, he's making something beautiful. Everybody have that image in your mind? That's God working on you. You are his worksmanship. Whatever spiritual growth is happening in your life, it's in his hands. He's working on you. He's transforming you, changing you, and shaping you. We are his worksmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't do good works to get to heaven. We do good works because that's what we were created for. Do you know that good works from a, from a position of salvation will bring you joy? You'll actually enjoy it. Now, God isn't expecting you to get the good works perfect. All he's asking you to do is to walk in faith. And you're going to step into good works this coming week that God has prepared for you, and it will bring you life and bring you joy. Look at what he says. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is out in front of you. What's he doing? He's preparing good works that you should just walk in. When you wake up on Monday morning, you have your agenda for the day, and God has his. Surely you've lived enough Mondays to know Mondays don't go according to your plans. But here's what the gospel just said. God is so kind that he's actually got out in front of you on Monday and prepared good works, and all he's asking you to do is just walk into him. It might be a kind email reply. It might be stopping to pray for a coworker. It might be praying for that really nasty, angry UPS driver that just dropped a box and stormed out. You're like, man, he's having a rough day. It might be intimate time with your spouse. It might be in your disciplining of your children. And like, God is preparing good works for you to wake up on Monday and walk into them the same way you walked into your salvation. Remember? The faith. And as God unfolds these good works in your life, he's not asking you to get it perfect. He's just saying, walk into them. I'll give you what you need. Walk into them. I'll give you what you need. And he is preparing these good works in advance that you should simply walk in them. Listen to this couple last thoughts. You didn't do anything to get God to notice you. So it's not like PE class where you were trying to get picked for Red Rover. You didn't do anything to get noticed by God. God chose to notice you even when you had nothing to offer in return. You didn't do anything to earn God's favor. He gave it to you as a gift out of his delight and his kindness. And you can't do anything to maintain it or preserve it. God saved you. God preserves you, which is the word salvation here. You can't do anything to pay him back. So here it is, the final question. What then is my part in my spiritual growth? What I'm going to give you is going to be simple and profound and life-changing. Please listen. This is where we're going to get tripped up. First thing you need to do is you need to show up with God with what you have. Which means, more often than not, we're going to show up with nothing. <laughs> nothing. Some days I have 13 cents. Some days I have 7 cents. Some days I have a whole dollar, which doesn't buy you much anymore, does it? God is asking you to show up with whatever you have, even if it's nothing. Then he's calling you to tell the truth about it. 
Show up with whatever you have and then tell the truth. Find out if God is this angry, vengeful God who's just waiting on you to slip up and dump fire on you or if he's actually kind, compassionate, merciful, and graceful. And the way you test that is what? You tell the truth. You can confess sins. You, you know he already knows them, right? I say that in jest, like, Adam, you're like, oh, Adam and Eve, that's so cute. You're hiding under a bush. <laughs> he, actually, he, was, he saw what you did. Okay, he sees what you do. Your confession is just simply agreeing with him and telling the truth. Hey, God, I've made a mess of things. I sin, I'm guilty. You can confess your brokenheartedness. Do you know you can bring him your anger? Yeah. What was it? Psalm 109, guys. We read this last week in a men's fellowship group. You can confess your grief. Listen, you can confess your doubts and your questions. You can even confess your lack of faith. God, you told me to show up with faith, and I don't feel like I have any today, so I'm just going to tell the truth. Now listen to me. Confession, truth-telling, is the doorway to miracles. God does something miraculous with the confession of his children. Like, I want you to, to note that. When God invites Adam out from hiding, Adam, where are you? Come tell me what you did. He already knows. But he also knows that when we confess, it leads us to freedom and forgiveness and restoration. We tell the truth. We give whatever it is that we have to God. This is what I have today, God. I'm struggling in my depression. I would love to live for you today, but this is where I'm at. I'm struggling with my anxiety. I'm struggling with my belief. I've got some really, really unhealthy anger towards this person. Whatever it is, you bring him what you have, you tell the truth, and then you give it to him. And then you do this simple thing. Ask him to do more in you than you can do for yourself. And this is where the miracle will come in. Here's where I'm broken, and I can't do anything to fix it. I've tried. Will you do more in me than I can do for myself? And then be prepared for God to work miraculously in your life. And then the last thing we do is we trust him. We walk forward in faith into the good works that he has prepared for us. That's how we participate in our spiritual growth. Show up with what you have, tell the truth, give it to God. Ask for what you need, and then walk in faith. I'm telling you, it is a transformative, supernatural process. Now, I want to land here, and I think this is a good start for our series. We'll come back next week and pick this up again. Um, I want to say this. This is really important. Please hear me on this. Paul is writing Ephesians to people who are already Christians. That's why he's saying you were, but now you are this. If you're here today, and, and me walking through the gospel with you feel, sounds like something you've never heard before, or it's inconsistent with the gospel that you've been holding on to for your salvation, I want to encourage you to come talk to somebody today. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I would love for you to come talk with somebody. A prayer partner, a pastor, or an elder 
and let us be with you while you reach in your pocket and see what's there and bring your nothing to God. Today may be the first time you've heard the gospel. It may be the hundredth time. The invitation is the same. Come and believe what I'm telling you and take what I have that I'm offering you and it's yours. So I'm going to pray for us now and invite the worship team back out and just encourage you to respond with whatever's going on inside of you. Let's pray together and then we will respond. Um, Father, you are holy, you are good, you are true. Your accountability over us is always accurate. You never miss the mark. God, thank you for the honest description of our spiritual life before you intervene. We truly are dead in our trespasses. We're so thankful that your character is is even more than that. That out of your character, you have dealt mercifully with us. You have poured out your love on us through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son Jesus. And as we walk through this series together, oh Lord, hear my prayer. Would you help each one of us individually to believe the gospel? And would you maybe even do something more monumental than that? Would you, would you help us as a church to become a people who believes the gospel? Could you help us become a people that teaches and preaches and proclaims the gospel? And could you help us become a people who live, breathe, walk in this beautiful truth of the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.